So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hey friends, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. Thrilled to have you here with us today. Super excited about our guest can't wait for you to meet him. Before I tell you about our guests, let me give you a couple little housekeeping items. I want to let you know that in last week's Typology Podcast episode, Ian and I discussed the new story jar. And the new story jar is a really practical tool on how you can help to re-narrate your new story. If you haven't listened to that podcast, you can check that out or you can actually go to Ian's Instagram at Ian Morgan Cron, and he models it for you every day for the week of this past podcast. So there are seven examples that are living there for you to check out. And you can go to ianmorgancron.com slash jar and download a PDF that has been created with messages for each type so you can get started on a new story jar of your own. Be sure and check that out. Remember Ian's book dropped on December 28th, The Story of You. Check that out if you haven't already. So now let's get to our guest, a friend of Typologies. This guy has a fascinating story, y'all. I really am looking forward to you getting to hear this. Doug Bobst, he's an award-winning personal trainer, author of three books. He hosts the Adversity Advantage podcast, but man, does he have a story. He's a former convicted felon, drug addict who spent time in jail for possession with intent to sell. He was incarcerated in 2008, and while he was serving his time, he experienced the beginning of a revolutionary change, and now he is on a crusade to inspire others to overcome adversity and to become the highest version of themselves. I'm telling you, you're going to love this episode. Doug Bobst, so glad he's here, a friend of Typologies, and we're glad that you're here too. Much love to you all. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner, and now here is the host of our show, Ian Cron. Doug Bobst, welcome to Typology. Ian, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Well, we have as well, and uh, we did something different. We did start the show off by kind of giving your bio at the front end. Uh, rather, your story is so interesting that I would rather have you tell it from your perspective, particularly as an Enneagram 3, the performer, sometimes known as the achiever. What's interesting today is, you know, I consider myself to be an Enneagram 3, and the different tests I've taken have proven that. And some of the things that I have achieved in my life that I felt good about is that I've stayed um, in recovery from from drugs for over 13 years. I've written three books. I have a podcast called The Adversity Advantage. I've been able to share my story to some on a, some amazing platforms, including this one here. And it's all made me feel good about who I am because I've looked back and I've seen that the the pain in my younger years has turned into some purpose to be able to help other people. And I also see that as in my success as a personal trainer, I've been a personal trainer for almost 11 years. And that to me has been fulfilling. And I've, it's really made me feel good that I am now using um, this tool that helps save my life and fitness to help others. But it hasn't always been the case that I was this positive achiever. Um, you know, growing up, I dealt with all kinds of insecurities, pain, and trauma in the most negative way. My, my parents got divorced when I was five. I was, I was bullied a lot in school. I was picked on. Um, and when it comes to achieving as a kid, I was always the kid who wanted to be good at sports. I wanted to be picked first for the team. I wanted to score the winning jump shot. I wanted to be the, the face of the team. I wanted to have you know, the, the most attractive girlfriend. I wanted to achieve all these great things. Problem is I didn't. I was the most unathletic kid there was. I was always picked last for the teams. I was cut from different sports teams. And, and it created this what's wrong with me mentality on the inside 
that just continued to stack as I got older. The more I got bullied, the more teams I got cut um, from, the more my my parents' relationship um, split, uh, the more abuse I began to suffer. Like things started to stack really badly for me. And my first opportunity to really numb the pain in a significant way came from smoking pot. And the interesting thing now is pot is, is fairly legal in, in most states now, I think. And I never thought in a million years that my first hit off a marijuana pipe would lead me to being incarcerated on felony drug charges back in 2008, but it did. And the reason I share this is because when we make poor decisions like this, that we don't necessarily think about the repercussions down the line, we don't know where it's going to take us. And especially somebody like me who had this yearning inside to achieve greatness, this yearning inside to achieve success, this yearning inside to achieve um, goals in life and be the, become the best version of myself that I just wasn't doing. And that one hit just quickly snowballed into me smoking it every day to support my habit. It quickly evolved into me being kicked out of my mom's house because that created tension in our relationship. I'm, I'm shipped to my dad's who lives 30 minutes away. I changed schools all within 24 hours. And they thought in that moment that that would give me a reason to say, hey, you know, let's pull him out of his environment. He'll change his friends. He'll change his habits. He'll change his behavior. Behaviors will be a wake up call for him. But really, it just stacked more What's wrong with me? How am I going to achieve anything? Um, you know, why is this happening to me? Like more so like becoming more of a victim in my own circumstances. And I chose to continue to use drugs and find different friends that were supporting those behaviors. Barely graduated high school. And then <laughs> as I look back, you know, my I, I wanted to achieve different things by going to school. Like that was a big thing for me, going to college. And that didn't work out just because the, the money wasn't there financially for my parents. I didn't get into some of the schools that I wanted to get into. So I needed to find a way to achieve something else. So I started selling drugs and I became a really good drug dealer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is a three story, by the way. And we're going to circle back to it, but continue. Yes. Um, so I, I, barely, I, uh, I barely graduated high school. I get out of high school. I start selling drugs. And then the more... Like the, the more uh, like drugs you start to encounter, the more people you start to encounter, like with, who are selling drugs, you end up meeting people who are now doing hard drugs. And that for me was I, I met people who were doing coke. I got introduced to cocaine, um, which I loved because when I snorted coke, I felt like I could achieve anything. You're talking to a guy who had the lowest of low self-esteem at that point in my life, even though like on the outside, you would think, wow, he's cool. He's doing drugs. He's hanging out with all the cool kids. He's selling drugs like life must be good. But really, I was emotionally bankrupt. And the problem was I developed a habit to coke. And I had had some anxiety issues growing up and, you know, doing coke every day and anxiety went about as well together as somebody trying to lose weight and eat pizza every day it just doesn't work. Right. And what really ended up bringing me to my knees and crippling me in my addiction was opiates. And mm. I had started to develop some severe um, anxiety in response to the drugs, my circumstances, just looking at my life and being like, what am I doing? Like, am I really achieving what I want? Am I really going anywhere? Like, is this really like, you know, what I'm made to do? And a friend of mine offered me a five milligram Percocet. And when I took that five milligram Percocet, it gave me the same overwhelming numbing sensation that the first hit off the marijuana pipe did for me when I was uh, a teenager. And at this point, I'm like, you know, 18, 19 years old. And um, that slowly but quickly, I should say, turned into me doing three, 400 milligrams of Oxycontin up my nose every single day to mm -hmm. the point of where my half my left nostril was mm -hmm. missing. Um, and I was just completely um, hopeless. I was lost. I was having suicidal thoughts. And everything kind of came to a head for me on Cinco de Mayo of 2008. I was riding around with a few of my friends to make a drug deal. And there was a cop running radar because it's one of the biggest drinking nights of the year. And so I thought it was a good idea to, to hide the fact that I had a busted headlight. I thought it was a good idea to flash my high beams at the police officer. Well, of course, it gives him a, a reason to pull me over, pulls me over. My heart like sinks literally into the pit of my stomach. I just knew my life was over. 
Um, I stammer to pull out my, my license and registration. One thing leads to the next. He pulls me out of the car, searches it, finds the half pound of pot in my trunk, $2,000 in cash in the glove box, puts me in handcuffs. And Ian, I remember sitting in the back of the police officer's car that night and um, just thinking, how did I get here? Like everything came to a head, all the poor decisions I had made, all the, the abuse that, that I kind of had suffered, all the bullying, all the teams I had been cut from, all the girls that rejected me. Like I was just starting to contemplate, like, how did I get here? How did this kid who just wanted to be successful, how did this kid who just wanted to fit in? How did this kid who just wanted to make that team? How did this kid who just wanted to be loved? Like, how is he in the end? How is he right now in the back of a cop car facing felony drug charges? And it came down to my choices as I as mm. I look back now at it and went to jail. And then a few months later, um, I went to court and the judge um, found me guilty of a felony, which was possession with marijuana with the intent to distribute, um, convicted me of that, sentenced me to, to five years in jail, but suspended everything but 90 days. Like meaning if I had like messed up on a drug test, if I had violated my probation any other way or got another charge, I could have potentially gone back and done the full five years, gave me five years probation, 200 hours community service, all fines, all kinds of fines and drug classes. But the judge looked at me and he's like, Doug, you're young, you're 20 years old. He was like, this felony conviction is going to haunt you the rest of your life. He's like, if you complete everything without messing up, no missed probation appointments, no failed drug tests, like no, like nothing, totally um, perfect. I'll take the felony conviction off your record at the end of the five years of your probation. And at that point, like he told me he was giving me a break. I was like, break? Like you just told me I'm going to jail. Like, how is this a break? And, you know, we had buried several of my friends in our friend group up until that point. And I didn't think I was going to live to see 25. So I just had no hope that any of this even mattered because I'm not I'm not looking that far out. I'm looking like, how am I going to survive jail? How am I going to survive these first few weeks? How am I going to survive this next year? And he gave me a few weeks to kind of gather my belongings, say goodbye to my family and essentially it gave me more time to do drugs before I went in. And I reported to jail October 21st, 2008 is a week after my 21st birthday. And the wildest thing of this whole story is this is I cried the day I went into jail because I didn't want to go in. And I cried the day I left because I didn't want to leave. <laughs> and as people who are listening to this can imagine, I had all kinds of fears and insecurities going in, um, specifically based on like how I told you I grew up, like who I was as a person. I wasn't athletic. I wasn't coordinated. I was never going to win a fight. I was, you know, 50 pounds heavier than I am now. Like I was just totally scared and mortified of being incarcerated. Plus, on top of all of that, I had a significant opiate addiction to kick. Mm. And so I detoxed cold turkey for the first few weeks I was in jail which felt like the worst case of the flu. Like, I mean, uncontrollable bowel movements, vomiting, like the whole nine yards was horrific. And um, my soon-to-be cellmate was sitting there playing Scrabble, and he looked at me. He could just tell that I was just feeling unconfident. He could tell my self-esteem was low. He could just tell I needed some help. And this guy looked like a more, he looked like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club. And he just said, you're going to start working out with me when you get through your detox. And I was just like, no, I'm not like I could, I could have been a model for Pillsbury at the time. Like there's no way I'm working out with you. And he's like, all right, man. And he just kind of went on with his, his thing. And shortly thereafter, I saw him work out himself and he's doing like thousands of pushups, hundreds of pull-ups, he's like running all over the common area of the jail. And I'm like, who is this guy? And not too long after that, we were in the cell and he started asking me more about my story. And he just said like, you know, why are you in here? Like what happened? And I just said, well, my parents got divorced. Um, people picked on me. I didn't make the sports teams. And he just looked at me. And I guess the, the PG version is he said, quit being a victim. And in that moment, I was just like, huh? Like, I wanted to be coddled. I wanted to be told what I wanted to hear. But he told me what I needed to hear. He's like, you're blaming everybody for your problems, but yourself. He was like, there's plenty of people that went through what you went through that aren't in jail. He was like, you chose to respond to your circumstances in that way. And as, and as hard as it was for me to hear it in that moment, he was so right because the drugs had kind of gotten out of my system. And um, I just was starting to think a little bit more clearly. And I'm like, I've had 21 jobs up until this point. I've damaged so many relationships in my life. I'm a drug addict. I'm a convicted felon. I'm in jail. Clearly, I don't know what I'm doing. 
and it inspired me and it, it, i felt empowered for the first time in my my life and he looked at me he's like you got two choices you can be a man you can look yourself in the mirror and say you chose to get yourself here and it's up to you to get yourself out of the situation or you can go be a victim go cry in the corner say woe is me be pessimistic he's like most people will do that and that was what got me to start thinking differently and take him up on his offer to to work out and what started with me not being able to do a push-up from my knees um turned into him agreeing to train me in there every single day during my 90-day sentence we set some goals to do a set of 10 push-ups by the time i left jail and to run a mile which felt like climbing mount everest at the time because i could barely walk up and down the steps because i was smoking a ton of cigarettes I was just severely out of shape, overweight, like in every which way. But with his motivation and encouragement, I was able to do it. I was able to do the, that set of 10 push-ups, run that mile, and my life changed. I finally felt committed to wanting to do the thing I knew I needed to do, which was to change my habits, change my friends, change my life. I finally had developed discipline I never had. I finally got comfortable being uncomfortable. I, I finally got okay with... Um, managing my emotions in a healthy way, which I had never done before. And then the day I left, I cried because I felt like this guy had um, just given me this gift and, and helped to change my life. And I asked him how I was ever going to repay him. And he said, don't mess up and pay it forward. And he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place today. So I never forget where I came from. Got out, lost a bunch of weight. Um, and got to a place fitness wise where I wanted to help other people use fitness to change their lives. And that's why I became a trainer. And then time quickly flew by because I developed this new high, like I said, at the beginning of of wanting to help other people use this gift that had been given to me um, to achieve greatness in their lives. And I quickly built a personal training business. Um, I completed everything that the judge asked me to do without messing up. And he ended up taking the felony conviction off my record in January of 2014. And that inspired me to write my first book, From Felony to Fitness to Free. And then ever since then, I've been on an absolute tear to, to not only to share my story, but to help people make the most of their second chance, yeah. turn it again into a positive and become the best version of themselves. And actually, the felony is officially expunged my record as of last year. So that's the briefest I've ever told my story. So hopefully people <laughs> could... Uh, could get an idea of uh, the craziness that happened. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I, uh, you, you've given me so much that I, I want to speak with you about. One thing that I think is interesting that I really want our listeners to hear, which is that people tend to think of Enneagram 3s in a very stereotyped way, <laughs> which is um, they mm -hmm. all want to be investment bankers. Uh, they, they all want to, you know, make it in the corporate world or be mm -hmm. salespeople. And it's, they have to remember that the unconscious motivation is that need to succeed, to appear successful, and to avoid failure at all costs. But it's contextual. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're a drug dealer, you just want to be the most winning, hottest, most successful drug dealer around. Yep. Right. If you're born into, uh, let's say, a mafia family, you want to be the Don. Mm -hmm. Right. So and, you know, if you're born into a wealthy family in Greenwich, Connecticut, you may want to end up being an investment bank or the head of, you know, the CEO of, you know, Citibank or Goldman Sachs. But the point is, is that it's not always, you know, oh, I want to have this and, you know, a house. Thing. It's mm -hmm. really about I just want to achieve. I want to perform. I've got to be the best. I got to win and I got to make it look easy. Right. right. I got to make it look easy. So that's the first thing that I, I want to sort of highlight from from your story, because it's such a great, great lesson. And it's interesting because Doug had this from the very beginning. He imagined himself on the football field, like being mm -hmm. the face of the team, all those kind of things you, you hear in your story, Doug, very three-ish, right, Ian? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so one of the things that I also found interesting, inspiring, that I wanted to flag. So I just, I just released a new book called The Story of You. And the book's premise is, is that all of us pick up a story in childhood that we use to explain 
who we are to ourselves and to other people. It's made up of internalized messages, false beliefs that we get from the, our culture, our parents, our situation, our traumas, our teachers, our, you know, all those places, right? And you actually enumerated some of them, right? Uh, what's wrong with me mm. was one thing that, that, that you mentioned, right? So, so one, part of, uh, what, one of the stories that you've told yourself growing up was what's wrong with me? There's something wrong with me, mm. right? There's something deficient about who I am. Mm. The, there's something that, for whatever reason, ha- has left me inferior to my peers. Like I don't belong might be a, a, another one, right? And uh, that's, a, that's a story that you ended up telling yourself about who you are and that led you down the road to where you got, right? And uh, what it sounds like happened is that you restoried yourself. Like you, you wrote a new story for yourself. And I want everybody to hear that because that's like the premise of, of mm-hmm. the book. Uh, and I... I, I uh, and of course, the, the bottom line is that we want it from the book for people to uh, be able to learn how, how they can rewrite the story of their life, which is in essence what you just described. You're so spot on. And I think so many times people, when they're writing the story of their life and as it unfolds, they get to a bad chapter in their life or a few bad chapters like I experienced. And like me, what I did is I took that pen And instead of rewriting my story as a teenager, I threw it in the sewer drain and said, you know what? It's over. I feel so disempowered. Like, this is it. So I might as well, like, just go as far down the the addiction hole as I can. I might as well just continue to numb the pain, continue to sell the drugs, continue to not believe in myself, continue to damage relationships because it doesn't matter. Like, my life's not going to get any better. Right. And I was also under the impression I'm a Christian now. I know you guys talk about Christianity and I grew up like old school Greek Orthodox. And I, I knew that if I was good, I went to heaven. If I was bad, I went to hell. And so I already had assumed I was going to hell based on my choices. So I just said, you know what? Like, screw it. What's it matter? I'm already going down the path. Like, I can't improve my life. Like, I didn't know about like the story of, of Jesus and the power of the resurrection until later on in my life. And I share that because there's a lot of people that feel this way, whether they're Christian or not. They feel so disempowered and they feel like, their story stops there. And I felt that way up until that point when I was in jail talking to my cellmate. And that's why I tell that story because it was so important at that time is that I felt the story was over. I didn't think my life was ever going to get any better because I had failed so many times. Like you said, I created this story in my head. That's who I was going to be. But when he said, Doug, you have a choice. You can turn your life around, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be up to you. It's going to require you to put effort in and then once I, t- I believed him first, right, and then I believed in myself just a little bit, and I gave that new story a chance, I saw me, like, searching for that pen in the sewer drain, like, slowly but surely and picking it up and starting to rewrite that story. Mm. Wow. And it was so powerful. Mm. One of the things that's amazing, too, is it feels so providential, the cellmate. Yeah, and it wasn't easy. Like, I, I tell you, like, he wasn't it wasn't easy to take on the task of, of working out because oh, I'm sure like you guys mentioned one of the things as an achiever, like you're, you're terrified of failing. You're, I was terrified mm. of what other people thought of me. Like that was one of the <sighs> biggest hurdles I had to get over was getting in front of a bunch of grown men who I was already terrified of mm. and then going to do a thing that I was scared of, which is exercising in front of other people. And then on top of all that, I can't even do a push up from my knees and I collapse and then worrying about what they were going to think. But once I did that and they didn't say, oh, you suck, you're weak. Like Once they didn't say that and once I accepted that, OK, like that's just a story that I've created in my head. Nobody cares that much about me. If anything, they're maybe a little bit inspired because they're looking at you and saying, well, at least this kid's giving it giving it a shot. I was just like, oh, like I can do this. Like It doesn't matter what anybody thinks anymore. And that was powerful as well. Mm. I love that you said that you recognize that was a story you were telling yourself. Yeah. That that this narrative that you had of what they were thinking might not necessarily be true, which is plays into everything you talk about in the book, Ian. Yeah. Well, and you know, we share uh, one one 
dimension of our stories is I've been in recovery from drug and, and uh, alcohol addiction. Uh, and, you know, I, I see in my own life, number one, I too had a mentor, right? Uh, a guy who intervened. He was a 70-year-old guy. He was a psychotherapist, and very wise. And he was my sponsor. He was my first sponsor in my 12-step recovery community. And uh, he asked me this question. So one, one night I was asked to speak at, at what's called a speaker's meeting. I don't know if you uh, attend a 12-step community or not. I, but, I, 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 I'm not in, I didn't get in recovery through the 12 steps, but I've been to, to meetings before and I've been to a speaker's meeting. Right. So I got up, you know, I'm only a couple of months sober, right? And uh, I had a prescription drug addiction uh, along with alcohol. And uh, he said, okay, I want you to just tell your story. So you got to tell what your life was like. You got to tell, tell people what happened and what your life has been like since you've come into recovery as a result of working the steps. That's, the, that's what you're instructed to do, right? I get up and I spend my whole time talking about my early life. <laughs> because I thought, man, you know, I got a big story there. You know, I yeah. grew up with an alcoholic, drug-addicted father who died from, you know, from his disease. You know, I, I grew up in complete chaos. And here's the story I told myself about who I was that got me into those rooms, mm. right? That got, eventually got me into treatment. You know, it got me into all this stuff. And it was this, there's something fundamentally wrong with me. I don't know what it is. There's something missing inside me that everybody else has. I feel like a, just a troubled guest on the dark earth. And I, I, you know, I struggled with depression. I struggled from panic attacks. Of course, some of that was chemically induced, right? Uh, and I... Uh, you know, I'll, I'll never belong. I'll never know wholeness. I'll never, you know, blah, 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 blah. The story just went on and on and on. And I had been, you know, I had, you know, certainly a victim mentality, but mm. in a way I kind of earned it honestly. You know what I'm saying? Like, in other words, I had been victimized. I mean, so we can't, but I didn't have to become a victim. I'm just saying I was victimized, right, by circumstances, by different people. There had been sexual abuse. There had been physical abuse, blah, all that stuff. And uh, I get to the, I get, to, I tell the story, and then that night uh, after I was finished, where he and I are driving home, he's seventy years old. He was so smart, man. He looked at me, he goes, "Hey, Ian, do you ever wonder if you're living in the wrong story?" <laughs> and that sounds a little bit like you know someone could have asked you that question, yeah. and you might have had the same answer I did, which is like, "God, I hope so," because this story sucks. Yeah, you're right. I had the same thing, like you said of like what's like what's wrong with me like why am i not fitting in how come my friends can eat the same foods i'm eating and they're not gaining weight like why am i wearing husky pants and others aren't how come every time i like a girl they don't like me back you know all these different scenarios that that happen they happen though and that was true that helped validate the story i already had mm -hmm. in my head and then i saw that my family like health genetics weren't the best so i'm like all right i'm gonna be like overweight and unhealthy for the rest of my life. And then I've, I've learned that that's not true. But another big moment of this story in my head came significantly after I got out of jail. I had still like years later, like I was probably in my like early to mid 20s. It had been years since I had been in jail. I was incredibly fit. I was healthy, but I still saw the old Doug in the mirror. I still saw like the overweight Doug. I still saw the, the Doug in the mirror that was getting rejected by girls. I still saw the Doug in the mirror that was dealing drugs and that was wronging people and that was a felon, like all the things. And I was wondering like, what was, what was wrong with me? I was like, how come people are telling me that I look like Mark Wahlberg and I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, I don't believe it. Like I'm terribly ugly or I'm overweight. How come I'm the guy that's being told that, you know, I'm, I'm fit and all these things, but yet I'm still terrified to ask a girl out in a grocery store or online. Like I was mortified and I was like, what's wrong with me? Like, what is like, what happened? And I remember saying to um, a few friends of mine who were a bit older and they said like, well, what happened in your childhood? And I, they knew my story. They knew my parents were divorced. They knew I got addicted to drugs. And I was like, you guys know my story, but they're like, like, how did you talk to yourself? How did people talk to you? And I started to really explain more into that. And they were like, your brain is just wired. You've, your brain has been essentially like hijacked and you've believed these lies, you know, that people have told you and you've accepted that as your truth. Mm. And you need to rewire your brain and take a look at your 
trauma and everything. And that's what honestly inspired me to go to therapy and work through that because I wanted to, again, change the story I was telling myself because while I had had so much success in business and as a trainer and um, all the other areas of my, my life, the one area I still wasn't having success in was how I like treated myself specifically and how it pertained to me wanting to have a partner. And that was something that I wanted to achieve. And the, I think the theme of my story specifically being a three Enneagram is that like when I feel that I can't achieve something or I feel like something is not going my way, I want to be able to do whatever I can to achieve that thing. And if I can't, like when I was younger, I would numb it with drugs. Like I didn't make the teams. I didn't get the girl. You know, I didn't have good relationships with with certain people. So I would numb. But now I've changed the story and being like, no, if you want it bad enough, you can achieve it. Hmm. It's just going to take some work and you to, to surround yourself with the right people and instill some healthy habits and continue to challenge yourself to get better. Man, this is, I mean, this is a fastball down the middle, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I can just keep swinging at this pitch all day long and hit it, you know, because it's just, it's just right in the zone of where we are right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, with all that's the, the writing and everything else. And one of the things you just highlighted are that every personality style, all nine personality types, their story includes just a catalog of false beliefs about themselves mm-hmm. and about the world. Like for example, an Enneagram three sees a world in which people only value them for what they do and accomplish, not for who they are inside. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, as a young man, you clearly bought into that belief, right? Like I have to, I have to achieve, I have to be successful. I have to, you know, uh, find my way in the world. Uh, and, when you didn't, because that was such a value to you, it was defeating, right? It, it just was, mm-hmm. you know, utterly demoralizing and defeating. And, mm-hmm. and then it becomes, that message then becomes, what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. There is something wrong with me. I can't achieve anything. And, and yet that's, you know, by virtue of my personality, what I want more than anything else, right? And so... Uh, one of the things that was striking me, and you can, I have an idea, but I don't want to, I don't want to foist it on you. So imagine the story of the first 20 years of your life and, and you were writing a book about it, right? It's a memoir. What, what would you title that story? Just quickly. You don't have to think about it too long. Like, just give me a title that would sort of, just sort of tell me that this is the name of my story in those first 20 years. A drug addict that failed at everything. Okay. Now let's we'll start with that one. All right, yeah. a drug failure that failed a drug a drug addict who failed at everything. Okay, and then what would you name the story that you live in now? I mean, I think as I look back, it always goes back to the title of my first book, "From Felony to Fitness to Free." Okay, great. So, you know what's interesting, Anthony? Hmm. It's like one of the exercises in the story of you is let's rename let's name the old story and let's rename the new story mm-hmm. right and you said two things on this and so if i were your publisher and you and i were in an argument about what the name of the books were going to be <laughs> which for those of you who are listening i want to let you know that there's a lot of negotiating around <laughs> book titles uh i, I would have said well hey man what if we named the old story uh what's wrong with me yeah and then the name of the new story would be from pain to purpose. Mm-hmm. Like I heard those two sentences mm-hmm. and what you just said, mm-hmm. and they just jumped out at me and went, they just shimmered, you know? And I was like, man, that new story is called from pain to purpose, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And that includes the journey from victim to hero mm-hmm. of your own story, right? right. Uh, so that's, that is fantastic and so, so beautiful. Okay, so you want to inspire others to overcome adversity. And uh, so I see you on an elevator. It, we're on the 20th floor. You got 20 floor, floors to tell me what is the key to overcoming adversity. We're never going to see each other again. You want to impress on me what that is. What would you say? I'd say it comes down to three things. Faith, 
family and fitness. It comes, it comes down to belief in yourself, belief in God or whatever higher power universe you believe in. It comes in to believe that things are going to eventually happen for you in a great way. Maybe not now, but eventually they will. You will get out of that adversity. It comes down to family, who you spend time with, who you surround yourself with. Family is also what you listen to, what you watch, what you read, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then fitness. Like, what are you doing to stay mentally, physically, spiritually, and emotionally fit during those times? And I guarantee if you can do those three things, control the controllables, you will get through that ad- that adversity in a way that's going to strengthen you. You're going to become wiser. You're going to become stronger. And you're going to look back and be thankful you, th- you did it that way. Mm. Doug, would you be my trainer? <laughs> no, he's looking at me. He's going, no, man, it's too late. It's, it's way too late. And you look way too, too bad. <laughs> never too late well man i'm just saying you you uh, have told such a beautiful story and and i hate to say it but you beautifully i was gonna you know it's really this show is all about you but you actually just sold my book <laughs> <laughs> so for that i'm 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 terribly grateful too and also just encouraged you know because i think both of us know that when we do talk about narratives and stories that we tell ourselves and others about who we are mm. that for me, overcoming adversity was all about, I, I got to drop this old storyline. Mm. I, I got to get, I got to ditch this plot mm-hmm. and I got to find something that that's life giving and true because mm. the old one, can I swear on the show? Am I allowed to, <laughs> yes. you know what I'm going to say? The, the old one was BS, mm-hmm. and I kept co-signing the loan on it. Mm, that's you good. know, yeah. I just kept co-signing, man. Like, okay, I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. Right, and uh, you. This is where. This is why in meetings sometimes you hear people say, "I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic mm-hmm. or drug addict," and because in your situation and in mine, you know, we can say we're grateful paradoxically because had we not hit that bottom, we never would have rewritten that story. Mm, that's good. Yeah. And I just, my hope is that not everybody has to hit like these bottoms, right? Totally. That we can get through. Cause I don't think my other thing too, is I don't think adversity is what breaks us. I think how we respond to the adversity is what breaks us. Like for me, mm-hmm. the aver- my parents getting divorced or me being bullied or not making the sports teams, that's not what got me in jail. What got me in jail was my response was me numbing the pain with pot me building a habit with that, me needing to sell it to get external validation to achieve success, me experimenting with all the other drugs that led me down to the opiate addiction, which, you know, mm. in turn impacted my life in every which way negatively possible. And then being arrested with all the pot, like that was all in response to the adversity. Now, I mean, I still, I still deal with stuff, right? I mean, I still get stressed. There's times I'm depressed. There's times I don't sleep well. There's times I'm anxious. There's times I don't feel like freaking working out. But how I deal with that now is vastly different. I still go to the gym. I call people that I trust. I I listen to podcasts. I will meditate. I'll pray. I will go for a walk. I'll do something. I will do whatever I can to to know that um, like so like here's the thing like during adversity, there's there's three things you must do, right? The first thing you must do is you must be aware of what it is. Like, how are you feeling? Is it anxious? Are you stressed? Are you depressed? Are you lack of energy? Cool. The second thing you must do is you got to accept it. A lot of people, Ian, when they hit adversity, when they feeling anxious, stressed, they go, why me? Why is this happening to me? What's wrong with me? Right. The story that we had mm-hmm. told ourselves for a good bit of our lives. And then we go down the shame cycle and then we end up just numbing our pain or we end up just continuing to stay in that victim mm-hmm. mindset. And this 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 hour of adversity or whatever it is that's happening turns into a day, a week, a month. And you look back and it all started with falling down that shame cycle. Mm-hmm. So the third thing that's so important after you accept this is just part of life, like we're going to have ups and downs is action is like, what are you doing to mitigate that? Like doing things that are going to make <clears throat> you feel good that are healthy and that are aligned with the highest version of yourself. And if you, people can do those three things when they hit adversity, like they'll be golden. Mm. Well, that's, that's uh, that's fantastic. I was also thinking about uh, this principle mm-hmm. that I think is true, which is what happened to you is not nearly as important mm. as what you think happened to you. Yeah, amen. So good. Wow. Right. Yeah. And 
and it's what happened to you is not nearly as important as what you in, how you interpreted what that what it meant you know so you know mm. if i grew mm. up in my home or in your circumstance you think to yourself well the fact that i'm being bullied the fact that i can't you know <clears throat> talk to a girl the fact that i can't get the blah mm -hmm. blah 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 it means there's something so wrong with me mm -hmm. that I'll never know wholeness or happiness or belonging or find my place in the world. And so no wonder I would go out you know, and mm -hmm. start stuffing Percocet or Oxy or whatever it is. And so you have also the right. You can't change the facts in life of what happened to you, but you can change the way that you choose to interpret them, mm -hmm. right? You can choose to say, this is my death sentence. Or you could look back at those things and say, no, no, this is my opportunity. Mm-hmm. I was uh, with a friend of mine this week who just went to an all-day uh, EMDR intensive, and that's what he came away with. It's like he was abused by his mother and father growing up, and the the story that he took away was, I don't matter, right? Mm -hmm. And he, he created a narrative around his experience, and this whole day uh, doing EMDR, he just sort of unwound that story and realized it wasn't his, you know, it wasn't the truth. Yeah. And ironically, that story helped him survive as a little kid. Right. Right. It, it helped him explain what was happening to right. him. Right. But when he dragged it into adulthood, it began it to kill him. problems, yeah. Right. It just began to kill him. Right. So I, there's another thing that you said, Doug, that I, that I really uh, uh, appreciated. And, you know, it's this whole idea that, you know, this is work. Like you don't just wake up one day and go, here's my new story and everything is good. You're right. No, I mean, you're, you're, Doug's laughing and, and like shaking his head. What, 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 what did I just hit with you, man? Yeah. I, I think at the end of the day, people think that when they are making a shift into something healthy mm. or something better for themselves, that all of a sudden life just gets easy. Mm -hmm. and it's just not the case and that's why i think a lot, i mean that's one of the main reasons as a trainer i see a lot of people struggle to maintain like their health new year's resolutions is that everybody's so motivated and excited first week of january they're in the gym they're doing a cleanse they're doing a diet they're doing all the things they're like oh my gosh i'm gonna start following all these health and wellness influencers then the scale stops moving they get tired they're like wow this is work i gotta get up like an hour early i gotta go to the gym when i don't feel like it i gotta you know continue to push through when it when it's not easy i gotta you know go to the gym at night if i oversleep by accident and then they're like i'm just gonna quit because this is too hard or the mm -hmm. scale's not moving and you have to choose your heart and i say this often like it's really hard to mm -hmm. push through and make sacrifices and get up earlier if you need to, to to work out it's really hard to change your friends and start spending time with people that have like-minded interests and common futures and not common paths it's really hard to believe in yourself, even when the circumstances like kind of tell you not to, it's really hard to continue to, to eat healthy on a regular basis, even though like you don't want to. But what's also really, really hard, guys, is this is living with regret like 10 years later that you mm -hmm. didn't make those choices. And I always tell people that because either way, it's hard. And, you know, especially in, re in recovery, you know, Ian, I don't know if you've had experience with this where everybody thinks like recovery is this like lovey-dovey great thing. And it is. Trust me. It's one of the greatest gifts that I've ever had. I'm sure it's one of the greatest gifts that you've ever had. But it's but life gets really hard, man, because now you're forced to deal with the demons, at least for me, that I was um, numbing with drugs. And a lot of people don't do that. Mm. And they turn to other things. And that's why I have been super passionate about spreading the word of fitness, not to be the solution, but to be a very major tool in people's tool belt for recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and not only that, but fitness is a great metaphor for so many other things in life, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, whether it's in your career or it's in your marriage or whatever, you know, we, we use those metaphors all the time. Mm -hmm. Oh man, that was heavy lifting, mm -hmm. you know, or this season of my life, man, was, in a, you know, you know, it, it's going to be a, it's, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, we use these things all the, the you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I think using fitness as a, a portal way into helping people become not only the physical 
the best physical expression of who they are, but the best emotional, spiritual, yeah. and psychological expression of who they are as well, because all of them require time in the gym. Yep, that's right. And it gets you used to having to use pain to your advantage, right? Because if you think about it in the gym, like to build a bigger bicep, you literally have to work the muscle until failure. You have to lift heavier weight than that muscle is using, or is that you have to lift heavier weight than that muscle is used to living, used to living, used to lifting, excuse me, in order for it to grow, right? You have to literally like run until you almost collapse. You're so out of breath, you drop down to your knees when you're trying to run like a faster 40 yard dash. And what happens mm. is after you go home and you rest, those muscles, they, they rest and they get nourished and they come back bigger, faster and stronger. And the mm. same thing happens with life. Like when you go through pain and life is challenging you, you have two choices. You can look at that pain and say, oh, my gosh, this pain's coming to destroy my life. This pain is going to ruin me and I'm just going to let it ruin me. And then you just give up and you stop doing the reps. You stop building the strength. And then you'll have that. And that'll be your new normal of how you deal with hard times. Or when the pain comes, you're like, all right, I know this is hard right now. It's tough, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to push through. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that I come out of this with some lessons. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that I use this time that I'm really struggling or things are hard to learn and figure out how I can use this, this pain to grow stronger mentally, emotionally, and physically, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, my wife and I are, are big uh, Bikram yoga fans, right? So probably four nights a week, we're in a, a hot yoga class, right? Mm -hmm. Which if any, uh, if any guy is listening to this right now and thinking to them, saying to themselves, oh, how not hard is that? <laughs> oh, it's tough. It's Bikram yoga is hard. That it heat, is. oh man. Yeah. And, and in fact, there's a lot of guys who come in and they're all beefed up, you know, and, and they, they come in looking kind of cocky and they, they look at all these, they look at the women in the room and they're like, oh, I can do this. Right. And dude, I'm just telling you, 15 minutes in the class, they're lying on their back. They just, they just can't go any further. Right. Anyway, the reason I'm saying this is that there are certain postures that you're holding for 60 seconds mm -hmm. that are incredibly painful. Right. Like you, everything in you is screaming, stop it. You know, your heart races, you know, I wear a, you know, a heart monitor. I'm running about 150, you know, and it's, you know, it's, that may not be a lot for some people, but from a guy my age, it's a little tough, you know? And, uh, but one of the things I'm always saying to myself is like, who says that's pain? Hmm. Like pain, saying that that pain is bad is just a label. Mm -hmm. You're just labeling it. And that label is just, you know, demoralizing you. It's discouraging you. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's not pain. It's just a feeling. That's all it is. It doesn't, it's not good. It's not bad. It just is. Trainer, am I saying the right thing to myself? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, pain can definitely be, be um, good in a way when you're lifting, right? Because, you know, you notice like a, a weight's getting like heavier and you want to kind of just continue to push through because you know that's going to help you build more muscle or like you're alluding to, you're talking about like a pose and it's going to be a little tough and, and hard because maybe you're, you know, stiff in certain areas or it's a lot a longer pose than you're used to holding. Um, but, you know, I don't I don't believe wholeheartedly in the no pain, no gain mentality. I also want to kind of say that because you do have to you don't want to be like just making like silly decisions just because it's hard. And it's painful. Like you don't want to be somebody who has has never um, like ran in your entire life and you're having um, issues like trying to, to lose weight and then you go out and try to run five miles like it's not going to work out well right just like if you've never taken a, a hot yoga class you don't want to be doing what the people are doing who have been there for 20 years right just because what they're mm -hmm. doing is painful for them like you want to find your own level of challenge discomfort that aligns with where you are and speaking of the we go go back to the the writing the book analogy i think one of the other things so we, we we've talked about how when people are writing their story one of the main things they struggle with is when they hit a bad chapter or two they take the pen and instead of rewriting a new chapter they throw it in the sewer drain i think the other thing they do is they try to write um someone else is chapter 20 is their chapter two mm -hmm. right they're comparing 
it's when you see this a lot in recovery where people are getting it five days into recovery and they're like, how am I going to ever get to five years? Well, at the end of the day, that person who has five years had to have five days, right? First. And that's another thing that people need to, to remember is, you know, don't compare your chapter one to somebody else's chapter 40 or chapter mm -hmm. 20 or chapter 25. And also remember that every single person who's at chapter 25 in that area of their life had to start at chapter one. They had to get to chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. You know, success isn't linear. There's a lot of ups and downs. Mm -hmm. um, we see people who are successful and we look at the top of the mountain, but we forget that some of their biggest successes and their biggest levels of confidence and fulfillment came from their continued belief in themselves to get back up after they fell on the way up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so this has been a great conversation, Doug. I, I feel inspired. I feel like I understand you threes better. I, I also feel like uh, it's it's just been an, an affirmation of so much happening in our lives here around mm -hmm. the typology offices, and uh, I'm deeply appreciative. So tell everybody about where they can find you, about your books, and, and all that stuff. I want to first thank you for having me on. I mean, this definitely like it challenged me, you know, because while I do know the Enneagrams, it's I'm not my main like wheelhouse or expertise. So it definitely got me out of my comfort zone to think like, okay, how can I tell my story in a way that's going to relate to the Enneagram and to your audience specifically? So I wanted to, to thank you for that. And um, if people want to connect with me, if they want to listen to my podcast or, or read my books, the, the easiest way, I guess, is if you go to DougVopes.com. It's got um, the links to buy my books. You can access my podcast there, which is called The Adversity Advantage, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, I'm on social media at Doug Bobst. I'm probably the most active on Instagram, so feel free to, to find me there and share a takeaway with me from this episode. If you learned anything, um, I'd love to hear it. Great. And by the way, everybody, just so you know, uh, Doug's last name is spelled B as in boy, O-P as in Peter, S-T. Uh, so when you go check that out, you know, m make sure that we want to make sure that you get the, the right address. And also, you were going to have that in the show notes, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. So everybody will know how to, to yeah. connect with you through, uh, through that. Doug, again, thank you so much, brother. I've, I'm inspired by your story, and I, I've learned so much today. And uh, I am going to go to yoga in, in approximately 90 minutes. And <laughs> I will, I will, I will, I will approach my practice with a newfound uh, commitment. So thank you. Um, Typology Tribe, uh, you know how we end this. Uh, and from the heart, we say it. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. And may you have rest. Until next time. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 